0: Good morning, everybody. How are we today? Thank you very much for that, those kind words, and uh, we shall be, well, I'll miss you, I'll we'll be uh, going off to uh, in this middle of the week, flying to England for some sabbatical study at Cambridge, uh, That's where I did my doctoral work, and I'm going back there to hit, the, hit the libraries and try to write some stuff. Uh, and uh, some of you probably know that uh, in my day job, I'm a professor of New Testament at Gateway Seminary down the road in Ontario, not far away. And, uh, and so one of the things I wanted just to say, just a moment for an advert, there's usually people in every church that God is calling to to vocational ministry or to really prepare themselves for the work of service for the Lord and if that's you then we would love to help you at Gateway uh study theology church history bible and all the ministry topics evangelism missions counseling all pastoral care and uh, so that's just a little advert and Gateway seminary you can find it on the web it's easy to find and uh, we'd be happy to serve you if that's where the Lord leads you for some extra tra- for some further training and preparation for ministry. Now, uh, we are in a series on life in the spirit. And this is the last of that series. There's a lot more that we could say on life in the spirit or on the Holy Spirit than we've been able to do in about, I think we've been working on this for about six weeks uh, and there's a whole lot more we could say, but this will have to finish it for now. Uh, and But we are in a, as part of that, we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And we won't quite get to the end of chapter 14 today, but we'll do most of it, God willing. And this passage, a fantastic passage in 1 Corinthians, all about the gifts of the Spirit, how those gifts manifest the character and the power of God in uh, in and through the church, how they are meant to be used with love and unity uh, for building up and not for tearing down. And so that's where the sort of context is. And, you know, Jesus is building his church, And he's building his church not only to glorify him through worship and praise like we've been doing this morning, but to speak to the world on his behalf, to be those who are God's ambassadors in the world. But this is a church in Corinth that if you read the whole letter, you'll discover it's got a lot of problems. They've got disorder, division, communication breakdown. Uh, immorality, lack of love, immaturity. They've got spiritual fan clubs where they prefer one leader over another. Uh, even leaders who are absent, they're not even there. Uh, they're just people that they've read or that they've heard about or they know from a, from a distance, and they, they, they're fighting over you know, who, do, who do you belong to. They're, this is a church that's over-impressed by fancy celebrity speaking power and re- rhetoric and, a, and the dramatic and... Uh, under invested in character and in godliness and in love and so paul is writing to them because they this is a church that it's the only church you know for miles around and uh well there's one nearby i suppose in Kentry, not far away but they're basically we're talking about a pagan world with a small church and there's really no one you can go to for help in, you know, there's not dozens of churches in the city that you can join together with and pray together. You're it. And and so he's writing to them because they're, they, they're interacting at every level with the world around them, the culture around them. They have to learn how to survive and how to thrive in Jesus in that kind of world which is not friendly to Christianity. And so that's what's going on here. Now, the passage we're coming to with 1 Corinthians 14, it's all about tongues and prophecy. And I will say that for many people, this is a difficult passage, uh, many people in the modern church. And there's a number of reasons for that, but this is a passage which is correcting excesses in the use of spiritual gifts, especially overenthusiastic people using spiritual gifts to display their spirituality rather than to edify the church. And it's the excesses of disorder and chaos in the way that these gifts were being used. Now, the problems for us, as we read a passage like this, is that we're, most of our churches in America are at the other extreme. Right? We, in other words, we don't have we, most of our churches in America aren't, aren't overly enthusiastic about the gifts of the Spirit and having to be restrained a little bit. We're at the other extreme. And uh, where we may need a gentle kick somewhere. And, uh, and so that's, if, we read, if we react to this passage by just banning supernatural expressions of the Holy Spirit, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Because Paul sees that danger himself of going the other way. In fact, the, la- the last thing he says in the chapter is, you know, don't forbid speaking in tongues. And so he's basically saying, don't overreact. Uh, but everything should be done decently in in order. And the other problem we have when reading any passage like this in the Bible is that we, most of us have been educated and shaped by a worldview which does not expect miraculous events uh, in, in the world and we don't expect for God to speak today. That's our worldview. Uh, whether you're getting it at school, at college, whether you're, you're getting it through media, uh, through the books you read, but that's the worldview of our society and culture and that makes it harder for us to read this passage well. In order to read a passage like this, we have to enter as much as possible into the first century world, into the world of those believers in Corinth and say, what are they going to hear When they hear this passage read out in church, what are they going to listen to? What's it mean to them? And we can't really ask what it means to us until we ask what it means to them. What did Paul intend to say to the Corinthians? You know, there are some Christians who are, and the technical term is, cessationists. And that simply means that they don't believe uh, that uh, supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit are any longer active or operative in the church uh And look, I know people like that, and I respect them as believers, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and as devoted followers of Christ, and as people committed to the Word of God and uh But I think if we hold to cessationism and we, as we read this chapter, we make it basically irrelevant. Uh, to 21st century church life, a kind of once-upon-a-time chapter in the New Testament that no longer speaks to the church directly or applies perhaps only as a a morality tale or a historical curiosity. But can we accept that? I'm not an expert on the things that this passage talks about. I'm only trying to tell you what it seems to me that Paul was saying to the Corinthians. And you don't have to agree with my interpretation How this church or any other should apply this passage is not for me to decide. But we should not ignore this passage or wish it didn't exist. (laughs) It exists. It's in the Bible. We don't want to cut it out. To do so would be to stand in judgment over the Bible itself and to shut ourselves off from the word of God itself. So... It is, in my mind, a fascinating picture into the earliest churches showing what they did when they came together. If you read through chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, it's all about meetings, about when you get together. And the meetings seem to start with a meal, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, which has bread and cup in it. uh, Well, a cup finishes the meal. That transitions them into the kind of meeting portion where they then uh, pray and worship and they use their spiritual gifts and they teach and and, and, and sort of respond to what God is saying. And that's how they did their gatherings. And uh, and so that's what a first century uh, church meeting looked like. Uh, as far as we can read it we see a very similar kind of uh, sequence in Romans 14 and 15 which basically the, the issue on the table there is literally what's on the table that is uh, what's the uh, what's what, what's on the menu at the Lord's Supper at the church dinner which was of course in the first century the Lord's Supper was a full meal uh, at least as much as you had it could not may not very much if you're poor uh, and so chapter 14 is about what you, how, what, what's on the menu, how you eat together with people from different, uh, with different views of uh, food issues and purity. And then chapter 15 is about worshiping together, about everybody singing together, eating together, singing together. That's what the church did. So that's the kind of context into which this passage is spoken. Now let's get right into it. So in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians verses one to five, and and we're we're just going to here start off perhaps with verse one. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Do you remember that last week we looked at chapter 13, all about love and gifts, how love is the thing that should rule the way we use the things that God has given us, the way we use our gifts and so on. Uh, But notice here that it's not asking you to make a choice between fruit and gifts of the spirit between character and charisma it's asking you uh, for both right pursue love that's important and earnestly desire spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy so it's not a choice to be made there it's a both and rather than an either or now Verse 2 and 3, we will read, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who, speak, who prophesies speaks to men, people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Well, this short section, a couple of verses here, really is defining the gift of tongues and prophecy. And... It seems to be a pretty clear definition to me, but let's just think about this for a moment. The one who speaks in a tongue, and by the way, tongue here means language, right? means language. This, in ancient Greek, there were two or three words for languages, and this is one of them. Uh, this is uh, glosse. There was a word, uh, dialectos, uh, from which we get dialect, but uh, there's different words for language. This is just another word for a language. So... Uh, but and this is a spiritual gift, which has already been mentioned in chapter 12, right? There's a gift of various kinds of languages, is what Paul says, or tongues. So what is this gift? And I promise that I would try to explain it when I finally got to this part of the text, and we're sort of putting that off. But uh, tongues are, according to this, God-given speech which is spoken to God. They're God-given speech, Spoken to God, in a language that's not understood by the speaker, in a language that's not understood by the speaker. All right, and that just bear with me for a minute. When someone speaks in a, in a language in a tongue as a spiritual gift, he says, he doesn't speak to people, not to men, but to God. All right So what kind of speech would that be? That's some kind of prayer, praise, blessing God, thanking God, declaring His greatness. You know, we can we'll show you how this works out later in the chapter. But that's what it is, by the way. Uh, and by the way, that suggests that if this is if this gift were to be interpreted in the church in Corinth, uh, then that that interpretation or translation should also be speech that's directed to God. That is prayer and praise and. And so on. There are churches today uh, that have people get up and speak in tongues and then uh, interpret. And quite a lot of them, when uh, if you were to visit that church, you're all, when you hear what's, what's apparently his interpretation, you're going to hear uh, a sort of a, a, a speech as if it were prophecy, that is, from God to men, or God, God to people. You know, this is what the Lord says to you. And look, I'm not, I, I don't want to put God in a box saying he can never do that kind of thing, uh, all I'm saying is that's not what Paul, how Paul defines it here. It is speech that is to God, God that is directed to God, given by God in a language that is not understood by the speaker. Now as to why God would do such a, a weird thing, that's another question we'll get to in a minute. I mean, really, what are, you, what are you up to, Lord? I mean, why would there be people in the first century Corinth that, as part of their Christian experience, are uh, given the gift to speak to God, prayer and praise in a language that they don't understand, that the people around them don't understand, and <coughs> has to be given another spiritual gift just to translate it. Why? What are you up to, Lord? Why would you do such a thing? What is that? What do we know? That's just weird. But listen. Uh, If God seems strange, you know, it's because we don't know Him well enough yet. It's because we're the weird ones. We're the ones out of line, out of step. We're the ones who've gone astray. We're the ones who're missing the point so often. If God's ways are weird and unusual, it's simply because we don't yet know His ways well enough. In Acts chapter 2 is the first mention of, of, of tongues in the books of, book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, where we, we've read of that passage before in, in this church, but uh, on the day of Pentecost, as an early church was gathered together in Jerusalem, 120 believers, and uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. And what did the people hear who gathered? There was a big crowd gather over 3,000 people, and it says this in verse 8 to 11 of of Acts chapter 2. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages, our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Now, when they, on the day of Pentecost, as this, as this Christian believers full of the Spirit, spell out onto the street, and they're speaking in tongues, languages they never learned, uh, what are they saying? Well, the actual phrase there in verse 11 is, is that they were speaking the mighty things of God. That's as literal as a translation as I can do it from the Greek. Speaking the mighty things. And they're not preaching the gospel as such. They're not saying you know, come to Jesus. That's what Peter did when he got up to explain it. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and has to explain what's going on. And he says, look, this is all about the Father giving, uh, fulfilling his promise in the prophet Joel that he would pour out the Holy Spirit on all peoples, all flesh, and... He's given it the job of doing that to, his, to Jesus, the Messiah, his son, who has received the Spirit and is now giving it out. And that's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. And so that's, uh, Peter is the one who gives the Christ content of what's going on there. He gives the Christological, the Jesus-centered content. But what are the other disciples? They're declaring the greatness of God. They're saying, how great is God? They're praising the Lord. And that's just right in line with what we see Paul says, tongues says, in First Corinthians 14. It's declaring the praises of God, it's prayer, it's speech directed to God in a language that they hadn't learned. Now, look, you know, we mustn't put God in a box and say God shouldn't do that, but God can do anything he wants. He's God, he's, we're bo- you know, he's boss, we're not. He's all-powerful, we're not. Who, who knows? And, you know, I had this friend, who was uh, training for the Methodist ministry, very traditional Methodist ministry. He went to a theology school, and, uh, and he was in a, a service, just a, Method, a traditional Methodist worship service, church service, in his theology, Methodist, well, actually, it was a Presbyterian school he went to, and, and uh, he went to this Presbyterian school, even though he's a Methodist, and uh He was just quietly in in the service, somewhere in the service, as as people were singing, he started to quietly worship the Lord, found himself worshiping God in another language, which he had not learned yet. (laughs) He'd only just begun his theology training, so he hadn't learned this language yet. But... The person, now, this, he wasn't doing it, in a, he wouldn't grab the microphone to do this. He was just singing along, as it were, to the tune of the hymn. But he found himself doing this in another language that he hadn't learned. Anyway, he happened to be standing next, next to someone who was much further advanced in his theology training. And said, who said to him, hey, do you know what language you're singing in? Nope. <laughs> That's Hebrew." So this was a, you know, because this is a guy who had learned Hebrew. He was further along in his theology training and had learned Hebrew to learn the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. And so that's just what happened to my friend. He just found himself worshiping God in Hebrew that he'd never learned. Uh, God can do that kind of stuff. Why not? Now, God can do all kinds of things with language. I have another friend who uh, was on an outreach in Spain. And he had organised to meet someone to talk to them about Jesus, sort of counsel them about their walk, about their life, and, their, and talk to them about the Lord. And he'd organised this meeting to meet, and he'd organised for a translator to come and meet them together at this meeting because he did, he spoke English, and the person he was going to talk to spoke only Spanish. And then they met up at the meeting place, but the translator never turned up. So you're on outreach; you've got someone who wants to hear about Jesus. You've made a time and a place. This is a great opportunity. What are you going to do? The translator doesn't turn up. Well, God gave my friend Spanish. He just enabled him to speak Spanish with understanding, and he spoke to this person and was able to minister to them. By the way, he, and that ability to speak Spanish stayed with him after that, as if he'd learned it at school. You know, that's not quite what Paul's talking about here, but it just tells you, God isn't, who can stop the Lord from doing what he wants, right? If we are open to him. Now, so that's tongues. What's prophecy? Now, what Paul says here? The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So it seems to be, we've already heard in chapter 12 that it's a gift of the Spirit. It's a gift to enable you or a believer to speak to someone uh, to other believers or to other people, uh, w- words that are encouraging, upbuilding, and consoling from the Lord. So prophecies are God-given thoughts spoken to people. That's what it is: God-given thoughts spoken to people. Now, look, I want to. We can talk about prophecy in terms of broad and narrow, right? So. Broad, there's a lot of things that are, broadly speaking, prophetic. That is, they declare the word of God to the church and the world. When you preach the gospel, when you share your faith with someone, you, you, you are doing a prophetic act. You are doing something that is declaring the word of God in the world, right? That's a prophetic act. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, as this afternoon, we are declare. We, it's a, in one sense, it, is a, it speaks a message, as Paul says. As often as you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord, the death of the Lord, until He comes. That's a prophetic act. It's a symbolic act, which is prophetic in the world. Uh, when uh, we, when uh, I lived in the southwest of England, we organised with local churches a march for Jesus around the town where we lived, and we got dozens of church, you know, lots of churches together. We all marched around, praising the Lord and finished up with a spot where we all gathered and we sort of proclaimed the gospel in the open air. That's a prophetic act. It's not, you know, is this what Paul's talking about here? I'm not sure, but it's there's lots of things that are broadly speaking prophetic. They speak the word of God to the world. And when you preach a sermon like this, you know, uh, in in some sense, I hope that it's in in a broad sense it's prophetic in in that we are declaring the word of God uh, to the church and to the world. That's that's what we're doing. Uh, but, you know, if your church leaders gather together and they seek the Lord and they, the Lord gives them a direction that the church should take, that's a form of prophecy. It's not that, uh, you know, uh, necessarily thus saith the Lord and these words are exactly what God has given us, but it's something that God has given. And for these gifts to be meaningful, uh, we have to recognize that God still speaks. Not that he speaks differently to his written word in the Bible, but nevertheless, he is is there. As Francis Schaeffer said, one of my favorite authors who wrote one of my favorite books, it's only little, it's easy to read. He is there and he is not silent. So God is a God who speaks. That's what this is about. You know, when I was a very young Christian and I was at college and I got saved halfway through college and I went on a Christian camp with some other students and one of the girls in the group was a bit depressed and down and and uh she was off went off somewhere in, we was up in the mountains in this cabins we were staying, and uh she was off somewhere. And so some of us were gathered in the kitchen of this campsite and we just said, Let's pray for Claire. We so we prayed for Claire. I just you know the little encourage encouraging, she's a bit down. And I i a young Christian, I didn't know what I was doing. And I while I was praying for her, I had these words drop into my head. The light of the Lord is upon you, right? That's like seven words. Uh, I didn't have I had a clue what was going on. I said, so after we'd finished praying, I said to the, a couple of these people there, look, this is really weird. I said, while I was praying, I had these words drop into my head. I don't know, what was that? They said, you just, said, I said just go find her and tell her. So I think that's for her, not for you, right? So, okay. You know, okay. So I toddled off through the up the track through the trees and found this girl sitting under a tree with a Bible open. And I said, very embarrassed, (laughs) look, I don't know what I'm doing. But while we were praying for you, I had these words in my head. Uh, They told me to come and tell you. (laughs) So the light of the Lord is upon you. she said oh thank you thank you you know she was feeling in darkness she had the bible open to the passage in isaiah arise shine for the you know, light has come the glory of the lord has risen upon you it was just like exactly the right moment the right word at the right moment um you know that's not very complicated and but it just happened to be right and the god guides. so you know it's possible that god can do this kind of thing uh if you're praying for a friend, and the Lord gives you a scripture to share with them, uh, yeah, go and share, share this text with them. It's going to encourage them. That's a kind of prophetic act, right? There's all kinds of ways that God speaks from through other someone to someone else. Uh, you know, in my own call to ministry, when I was, I spoke before about some of here. There's certainly be some people here a call to vocational Christian ministry and then missions and so on. You know, I was, I, I was uh, in doing a degree in urban planning, and I had, I'd got recently converted, and uh, I had these two dreams where the Lord spoke to me, and I was thinking, maybe he's calling me. And I, But, you know, the only two dreams in my whole life that I really can say to this day were from the Lord. And so I was very uncertain. I didn't know what I was doing. I had come out of atheism, and I, I what's up with this? So anyway, I was... Uh, My own church, which I grew up in, and then sort of, we'd gone very liberal, didn't preach the gospel, so I I tried to visit some other churches, and a friend of mine said, come to my church on Friday night. We've got a meeting on, the pastor's preaching. You'll get some good, solid Bible teaching. So I went along there, and I sat in the meeting, and halfway through the sermon, and I'm sitting about 12 rows back in this church building, and halfway through the sermon, literally the pastor stops and he puts down his Bible, and he points me out. Young man. I was young in those days. He said, young man. I had red hair. He said, young man with a red hair. Stand up. Okay, I've never been to this church. I didn't know them, and except for one guy. And I'm 12 rows back, and I'm standing up. I'm a very young Christian. Okay, I'm standing up. And he said, God's calling you to the ministry. Now sit down. And he carries on preaching. Okay, well, I, I was asking for confirmation. I got it. Uh, you know, I can't tell you that that sort of thing happens to me every week. All I'm saying is, well, you only get called to ministry once, right? And then it's done. But all I'm saying is that God is able to speak in all sorts of interesting ways through us to one another to encourage each other. And, but that's what I think is happening here. Now, let's keep reading, verse 4 and 5. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So here, notice, he's comparing these two gifts, tongues and prophecy. So the difference is, is who are they edifying? Who are they building up? Remember? the different kind of speech. Tongues is from God, but it's returned back to God in prayer and praise and so on. Uh, prophecy is is from God and it's delivered to someone else. I think that's really what happens. Uh, now, uh, he says, so it's better to speak in tongues in church because the church is built up, whereas if you're praying in a language that God has given you to speak to him, uh, then uh, you're only building yourself up, right? So... I said, unless someone interprets, in which case they're both up building for the church. Uh, you know, it, we can be built up when when God speaks through a sermon or when God encourages us through reading the Bible or when some friends of us say, I've been praying for you and God's given me this scripture for you, laid it on my heart. This is what I think he's saying. We can be built up through all kinds of things. But we can also build up by prayer when we hear someone pray. And if, if it's a prayer that's really uh, prompted by the Spirit, And that can build us up as well as we can say amen to that. And so I think that's what's the intention here, Uh, as I said. So the interpretation should probably be that kind of prayer as well. So communication is key, or comprehension is key. Okay, as we read for verse 6 to 9 now. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if your bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if if with your tongue you do not give a clear word, meaning if you or if you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And the only reason it's not intelligible is because people don't know that language. It's not that it's, it's not language. It's just that they don't know those languages. Notice in verse 6 then the power, power and variety of different gifts here, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching. They benefit people and build them up. Even music has to be clear to communicate. Uh, what the composer intends, uh, even the trumpet that calls people to battle has to be clearly played; otherwise, no one will 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 suit up for battle, right? Otherwise, if you're uttering speech that people cannot a prayer that people cannot say amen to, you know, you're speaking to God, but as far as other people are concerned, you're speaking to the air because they can't understand it. it this is a practical issue. Paul is not saying to the Corinthians, you know, if someone happens to speak in tongues and there's no interpretation, Paul, oh, you sinners! That's impure. That's unholy. You've just... You know, the judgment of God is coming. It's a practical issue. If you've got to pray out loud in church for other people to pray with, you should be something they can understand so they can say amen to. That's as practical as that. Now... Let's keep reading. Verse 10 to 12. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. It's basically practical. All right? Let's think about briefly about languages in the Bible. In Genesis 11, The story of the Tower of Babel, where people were in uh, arrogant rebellion against God and, and wanted to build a tower to heaven. And the Lord said, look, they're one people, they all have one language, and this is the only beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God judged the people of that time by giving them different languages so they couldn't communicate. He deliberately divided the nations of the world Uh, In order to stop them from having unity in rebellion against him. And so speech was a kind of, was a form of of control and judgment. Languages became a form of limiting the damage of human evil in the world. Now, if we carry on, if we go all the way to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, as this prophet is speaking, he says this, he's talking about the last days. He says, at that time, the Lord says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. In other words, the languages of the nations are impure. Why? Because they use them to worship false gods and idols. They use their lips to worship the wrong things. And, and they, they use their, their their tongues, if you like. They, they speak evil and he's going, to, he's going to purify their speech in order for them, the nations to call upon the name of the Lord and serve him together. We already saw in Acts chapter 2 uh, how, we, how we, the people at the day of Pentecost said, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty things of God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching in Athens and he says, he that is God made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having del- determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel after him and find him. This is Paul preaching, reflecting on Babel and saying there was more to Babel than simply judgment and dividing the nations, keeping them from being united in sin. It was, in fact, it had a redemptive side to it as well, that God is creating the nations and giving them their times and places so that they would seek him and find him. God created the nations to find him, to know him. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we read this. And John has this vision, and he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb wow what a picture what a picture every language We're going to be praising the lord at the end every nation See, the gifts of language that God gave, the the gifts of language, there's the gift of tongues. I, I think, I'm trying to explain it here, why would God give such a thing? Why would God enable someone in Corinth to pray in Swahili, you know, when no one in the church speaks in Swahili? Why would he enable them to do that? And I think the answer is this, as far as I understand it. The gifts of language or gift of tongues witness to the unity of all nations in Christ. Pentecost, in in a sense, reverses Babel, not by returning us all to one language, but by turning all languages into instruments of united praise. See that? Pentecost reverses Babel, not by returning us all to one language, but by turning all languages into instruments of united praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Language has divided the world. In Christ, in his restoration and recreation, through the spirit, the world's language is a turn to the worship of God, not an exact reversal of Babel, but a turning of the curse around to a blessing. What language will we speak in heaven? People argue about this in a lighthearted way. You know, is it Hebrew? Is it Greek? Is it Australian? Uh, you know, that's the most likely, but listen. <laughs> what language you we speak in heaven? The answer is all of them. All of them are there, which we saw in revelation, right? I mean people praising God in every language. The gift of tongues, therefore, in my view, acts to connect a monolingual local church, a single language local church, with all the other churches around the world who are using their language to pray and worship. It stands as a witness that this little group in Corinth or anywhere else is not alone but part of something much greater. Verse 12, Paul says, of course, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is something that will build up. Somehow, it seems to me that if someone in in Corinth is given the ability by God to to pray in Swahili, you know, or Tagalog, or Portuguese, or, or some other language, then this is a witness in that church that they're not alone that this is a part of something much greater than themselves, and they can share in the prayers of the nations as they worship Jesus together. And this is a little picture of the, of, it's a picture of what will be the case when Jesus returns, when all the nations were gathered and united in praise in all their many languages. That's how I see this working as far as I can work out. You know, study the Bible for yourself. There's no, by the way, you know there's no obligation to agree with me, and I know that never happens anyway, but uh, there's no obligation to agree with me or anybody who stands up at this church to, to speak. You have to study the Bible for yourself and see what you think God is saying. Paul gives, then, as a result of this teaching, three applications. Let's go to the first one, verse 13 to 19. He starts off by... The first one is pray for the gift of interpretation. Therefore, the one who gives, speaks in a tongue should pray that he or someone may interpret. That seems obvious, right? If you uh, Look, what's happening in Corinth, I think it's basically mic-grabbing time. People, you know, if they didn't have mics in those days, if they did, people would be grabbing the mic and saying, I want to speak, you know, and they're getting up and they want to, it's kind of chaotic. And several people at once are trying to speak out, pray out loud in, the, in other, some language that God has given them. And, uh, and and they all doing it, you know. They, and they sort of trying to get attention from everybody for how spiritual they are by their ability to do this. And Paul's saying, "No, no, no, let's not do this." So, first thing is, someone's got to. If you're going to do that, someone should interpret, right? Uh, a bit like this. If if we were inviting, uh, if we had a, someone here visiting here from. Uh, you know, from Indonesia, uh, uh, and we wanted uh, they wanted to pray. Uh, we wanted to invite them to pray for us in church. That'd be a very wonderful thing to do. And they can get up and pray, bless, bless us through a prayer uh, in Indonesian. That's a good thing. But guess what? You can't say amen to it, right? You don't have a clue what they prayed unless you know Indonesian. Uh, I Puji Tuhan. That's the only Indonesian I you know means praise the Lord. So if you hear that, you know, that you're good to go. But Let's think about that's just a practical issue, right? How can you be built up? It's a, it's a good thing that they're praying in Indonesia. It's kind of good. To, I'm glad we got that visitor praying in whatever language. But really, it helps to understand it. Someone should translate. So, verses 14 to 17, prayer with the mind and with the spirit. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays that my mind is unfruitful because you don't know what you're saying. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit. I'll pray with the mind also. I will sing with my, pray, praise with my spirit. I'll sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you bless with or give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say Amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be well may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So it's mind and spirit. It's not that we abandon our brains when we become a Christian, right? We pray with our mind, and we pray with our spirit. Paul says, when you're praying in a tongue, your spirit is praying. I don't know how that works. Holy Spirit apparently gives to these Corinthian believers uh, the ability for their spirit to pray to to the Lord through words that their own mind doesn't understand. But someone would if they understood that language. Uh, And so... It's mind and spirit. You'll notice, by the way, it's, he uses these different words for prayer. Pray, uh, sing, uh, bless, uh, give thanks, right? These are all aspects of God, of speech that's directed to God, every kinds of prayer. And uh, that's what this gift is, I think. Remember, I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to read the Bible here, okay? i, you know, I, I want to take this passage seriously and see what it seems to be saying. It's up to you to apply it. Here we go. I'll be in England. So, <laughs> verse 18 and 19 is Paul's own testimony about this gift. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's pretty, That's quite something to say when they were mad keen, tongue speakers. So it seems he did it quite a lot. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with a mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Uh, Now, listen, some people use the expression private prayer language. I don't like that expression because it's not in the Bible. (laughs) But apart from that, uh, it it seems to me that this gift starts in church but then can be private. It can be something he says. We'll see that in a moment. But the gifts of God are never private in one sense. They're never completely private. They're always something that's given for the church. Uh, Second application, pay attention to outsiders and unbelievers in the gathering. Verses 20, uh, show some maturity. Right? Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He's saying, look, think clearly about this. Let's have some maturity in how we are operating church here. And let's pay attention to what outsiders and unbelievers are going to experience when they come to church. Verses 21 to 22. In the law it is written... By people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, Paul is quoting a Old Testament passage from Isaiah 28, in which God is saying, I've spoken to you, Israel, for ages, and... You didn't listen to me, so I'm sending. This was. In, I'm sending the Assyrians. They're going to conquer you, and they're going to come speaking in a foreign language, and I'm hoping you'll 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 hear me speaking through that because this is my judgment upon you. But even then, they didn't listen. So the judgment is that is it's a sign of judgment because of unwillingness to listen to God's prophets, to God's word. Now. Verse twenty-two talks about the sign function of tongues and prophecy. What do I mean by that? Uh, there's a, a, a lot of these gifts of the Spirit have a, what I call a sign function, as well as a. They have sorry, they have a a function and they have a symbolic value as well. So, for example, if if there's a gift of healing, you pray for someone, they get healed. The the function is to heal that person. What's the symbolic value? It demonstrates God's compassion, His power, and His goodness, and so on. Uh, and prophecy is this. Now, I'm going to translate differently to the English Standard Version in verse twenty, uh, in verse twenty-two, because most translations have sign tongues as a sign for unbelievers. And prophecy is a sign for believers, and it seems to conflict with what happens next in the text. So, uh, it's better to translate these tongues as a sign about unbelievers, and prophecy is a sign about believers. It speaks with ref- It speaks in regard to them. It speaks something about them, and that's a very possible translation of this. The way the Greek is. What does that even mean? That means that tongues. The gift of tongues, not only does it act as prayer to God in the church, which people can then interpret, and then we can be encouraged and built up by that prayer, and that can stimulate our own praises and so on. But also, and as I said, connects us to the the churches in the nations who are praising God in their own language, but also it says something about unbelievers. What does it say to them? It says it confirms their outsider status because they come in and they hear a prayer that they don't understand. And this is, they, it literally confirms them in their outsider status. I don't, I'm on the outside. What does it say about believers? Prophecy says about believers, it says God's with them. Look at the example that Paul gives in verse 23 to 25. If therefore the whole church comes together and, and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, and in the Second Temple Jewish period between the Testaments, uh, prophecy was seen as a sign of the presence of God, of 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 the visitation of the Lord. And, uh, you know, uh, like Saul in the Old Testament, when the Spirit came upon him, he prophesied all night. It was a sign that the Spirit had come upon him. Uh, so here's his saying, if, you church, if people, outsiders come in and the church are speaking in tongues, but they're not, not interpreting, then they're just going to say, you're wacko. You know? But it's actually confirming their outsider status and keeps them further away. But if people are prophesying, it turns out, let's see what happens here, This sort of thing we'd really love to happen in church, wouldn't it? People come in, they're convicted, called to account, secretive heart disclosed, falling on his face, he's going to worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's dramatic. That's what we want to happen. Amen? Now, you know, of course, that most evangelism is not waiting for people to come in. We're It's going out to them. We know that, of course. But it's nice when this sort of thing happens. And you'll notice then that... We have to be aware of how we're communicating, uh, particularly in regard to unbelievers and outsiders who come into the church. But notice also that that awareness or that sensitivity, right, does not mean backing down from the message, because here, the outsider coming well, we've got to be aware, we've got to be sensitive to this seeker, right? But they're going to be uh, convicted, and they're going to be called to account. The secrets of their heart are going to be disclosed. That's, you know, that's, uh, I suppose that's seeker-sensitive, but, uh, you know, it's sensitive to their real need, right, for Jesus to, know, to hear the gospel, to know him. So awareness of the, of the communication of what's happening does not mean backing down from the message of the gospel, and does not mean uh, you know, limiting the power of what we prophetically say in the name of Jesus. Now, the third and final application, verse 26 to 33, talks about the etiquette of spiritual gifts. The etiquette of spiritual gifts. What manners or customs should, should the Corinthians operate when they... Uh, You know, because Paul doesn't say stop it. He doesn't say stop using gifts. He just says, this is how you do it. So verse 26, each one has something to, to contribute. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation that all things be done for building up. What kind of meeting is that? It seems like there's a lot of voices being heard in that meeting, not just a preacher and a praise leader, right? You've got multiple voices being heard In that church, someone's got a hymn, someone's got a lesson, a teaching, someone's got a revelation, someone's got a tongue or interpretation. Everything should be done for building up. Now, I suppose practically speaking, the bigger the group is meeting, the harder it is for everybody to get a say. That's why, by the way, that house groups and cell groups and so on are so important. Uh, But everything should be done for building up and recognize uh, that everybody has something to contribute to the body of Christ. Verse 27 to 28, then, how to administrate tongues in the church. If anybody speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So how do you know if there's someone to interpret? I don't know. (laughs) But Paul, he doesn't tell us, but Paul does say if you have that gift, you can pray for someone, either yourself or someone else to interpret. Now... So that's how you administrate it. You don't have people, you know, five people grabbing the mic and trying to do their prayer in tongues at the same time. Uh, you do two or three people one at a time, and then someone should interpret that lot. That's how it works. Uh, what about prophecy? How do you administrate that? Verse 29 to 32, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. It's uncertain whether it's the other prophets, or, but I think it's actually the rest of the church. Um, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirit of the su- prophets is subject to prophets and that 's a fascinating text, right Listen, the etiquette of church that we have grown up with is that if someone 's got the microphone, if someone 's got the pulpit, you can 't interrupt them until they 've finished right it 's the exact opposite in paul 's churches. If someone's speaking, another one here gets something from God, the first one should shut up because you want to hear what God has to say. You're more interested in what God has to say than just what one person has to say. And God might use multiple people to share his word in that gathering. So that's the exact opposite of the of the of etiquette the that we've been brought up with. It's fascinating to me. Uh, In other words, Paul is alive to the possibility, although there may be someone giving a teaching or a prophecy or something. If someone's sharing something from the Lord, if someone else, if God speaks through someone else in some way, they get something to share, then the first one should stop and listen. I think that's an interesting etiquette. And the point is that these gifts are not out of control. It's not someone in an ecstatic, you know, out-of-body experience just you know where they can't control themselves they're just motor-mouthing prophecy that's not what it is it is someone reflectively waiting their turn thinking about you know god's impressed this scripture in my heart here's what i'm going to say and waiting their turn and then indicating and getting up and saying it right at least that's what i think it should be i'm just trying to read the bible like you here The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Listen, you can't domesticate God. You can't squeeze God into a box and say, you've got to do everything this way, God, right? Do it our way. God, it's our way or the highway. No, no, no. He's in charge. We're not. He's boss. We're not. Jesus is Lord. We're not. Amen? So you can't domesticate God, but you can teach prophets manners. Uh, everything should be done decently in order. It says later in the in the chapter, right? The spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, it's not something that's out of control. Tongues speaking apparently, this prayer in in the languages of the nations and of the angels. That prayer is not something that's out of control. Uh, people call it ecstatic experience. Ecstatic, to, to, nothing to do with ecstasy. It's to do with prayer, uh, and uh, and so. And he says, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So, let's conclude. Paul is, in this long passage, teaching the church to build up the church. To build up the church because they want to act in love to one another and to the believers, to the unbelievers who come in. Is teaching them to build up the church through the use of whatever gifts God has given them, and in this particular chapter, through these two gifts of tongues and prophecy, which I've tried to define, however inadequately. I've so that's the main point here: build up the church by using the gifts in love, in a way that's makes that that's communicates to the church and to outsiders who come in. And in a way, that glorifies God, I think, can be said. But God is a God of, not of God of confusion, but of peace. The question then beyond that is, what kind of God do these two gifts particularly bear witness to? What do tongues and prophecy bear witness to? We've said that the gifts are manifestations of the Spirit, First Corinthians twelve seven. 7. So they, they say something about God, about his nature and power. Well, I think we've said tongues is, 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 does this. It, it speaks to a God who is God of the nations, who is calling all nations to come and worship him in their own languages. He's uniting the nations in Christ in worship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the picture, the eschatological picture, the picture of the glorious end. Whenever, at the end, when Jesus returns, the nations will be gathered, worshiping him in their various languages and tribes and tongues. And so that gift seems to witness to that incredible reality of what God is doing and taking the gospel to the nations. And in, each, in any lo- a little local church in Corinth or in anywhere, else, that, that gift then witnesses to that power, to that reality, to that incredible truth of who God is as he's gathering the nations, calling them to Jesus, and when and, and we're waiting for him to return. We can all worship him as one. What about the gift of prophecy? It seems to witness to a God who speaks, a God who is not silent, a God who wants to communicate to his people. He of course has primarily communicated through his son Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He has communicated through the act of creation when God speaks. He's an artist and his 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 canvas, if you like, that he has created speaks to who he is. God speaks even in our conscience, He speaks all kinds of ways. well, one of the ways that God speaks is through one another, through praying for each other and sharing in encouraging words as God gives us a scripture or a word or an encouragement to give to the church or to one another. that's how I see these gifts operating. This gift speaks to a God, speaks of a God who is not silent, who has not left us to our own devices but continues to guide us and lead us through his Holy Spirit as we seek to read his word and follow him in reaching the world for Jesus. Lastly, what kind of church does this speak of? It speaks of a church where every member of the church, every person in the church has the spirit, has gifts from the spirit, and as they use those gifts in love, are able to build up the church and reach People outside the church, in the power of the Spirit, in ways that are, go beyond your personal abilities, but come from the ability of the Spirit given to you. That we're no, we're not even in our in the, in what we're doing in the church, in our in our daily work, in our meeting with non-Christians, in everything we do. We're not limited to our own power and strength. If we, in fact if we do that, we'll fail miserably. But we are empowered by the Spirit in all kinds of wonderful, even supernatural ways, to do things that are beyond our own abilities, to reach the world and to build up the church. Well, I think that's enough said on this for today. I do want to, uh, as I I said at the beginning, I am going away for a couple of months, and uh, who knows when I'll be back. But uh, thank you for listening. And thank you for, and I pray that you will be able to take these messages on the spirit and just reflect on them for yourself and apply them as the Lord leads you in the wisdom of God as you share together uh, this is what i 'm trying to I think the Lord is saying to the corinthian church it 's up to you to decide what now he 's saying to you uh, now, let us pray, our dear lord, our dear, dear Lord. Lord, even when we read a passage which has caused well not passages caused, but which has been the subject of so much controversy, Lord we want to be humble when we read it, not to imagine we have all the answers, but to read in humility and, and, and sitting at your feet to know that you 're wise and to seek your wisdom as we read the word together. I pray that this that the words of this passage would stimulate faith in the heart of people here today. Faith to continue to trust in a God who is the God of the nations and who is a God who is not silent, but a God who seeks to build up his church to be the people of God in the world to reach the nations for Jesus with the gospel of Christ. Because as we know and as we look forward to Easter, Jesus is born the Son of God, Son of Man. He is crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, and He's the one who sends the Holy Spirit upon us to empower us to take the gospel to the nations and to build up God's people and to live our lives through every gift that God has given us in the character and love of the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.